My name is Tommy. I'm really glad that you're here this morning. Uh, I'm on staff, and uh, this is Palm Sunday. So if you're also, if you're of elementary age, we're going to dismiss you through this door. I always forget. I'm sorry. I think that's everybody. A few more. If you are just joining us this Sunday, you picked an awesome Sunday to come. This is the beginning of Holy Week, um, and it's an incredibly action-packed, really powerful, historic week in Jesus' ministry as we read the Gospels, um, which really has been carried on and celebrated and and meditated upon um, in the thousands of years since it's happened. So even now, as we sit down to begin Holy Week, we're, we're joining a really long lineage of people and a lot of people worldwide who are going through the same texts, who are meditating on the same things, um, and, and that's a really cool experience that we get to have. So all week, um, we're going to be, uh, this, this morning, we're, we're zeroing in on, on the first part, which is Jesus' uh, entry into Jerusalem for the Passover Seder. Um, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So all week here at, at Mercy House, we have things going on um, that, that you can participate in that Jesus would have done when he was here on earth. So um, these are things that we have to really help us experience the narrative and, and really just the historical events that would have, left, that would have led to Jesus' death, um, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But getting there really starts with something that's almost kind of menial as as you read through the Gospels. The scripture that we're looking at this morning is is a relatively small portion of scripture, but it's really one of my personal favorites. Um, It it tells us so much about the character and and the nature of God, uh, of Jesus specifically, both, both as a man and also as the divine God that he is. Um, so let me pray for us one more time, and then we're going to jump into the text. God, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for the, the warmth that's coming with spring. We thank you for the people that are here, uh, people who are here um, uh, as a part of this, this church community, but then also people who are here uh, visiting, God. Um, and we thank you for the friends and the family that are with us, and we thank you for who you are and what you've done. We thank you that you are the king that we get to follow. And we, God, I pray now that as we go through uh, and read your word that you would be speaking to us, God. Um, that your word would be revealed, that I would not be in the way of what you're trying to communicate, God, but that you'd use my words to glorify yourself. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to start with verse uh, 1. I'm sorry, we're starting in verse 12, in chapter 12. It reads, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So I'm going to stop right there. It doesn't seem very significant. But this one verse is a really big deal in the narrative of the story. We, we, we really can't feel it, though, if we don't see how it fits into the narrative. Um, if nothing else, this whole week really is a huge practical example of why context is really so important. See, Good Friday and Easter are holidays that can just pass us by like any other holiday. Uh, when, when we're not experiencing the narrative uh, and the events in context to when they're happening. And that's the reason why we're looking so closely at, at, at this very short piece of the narrative um, and leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection so we can really more fully experience and feel the weight of the events as they take place. And honestly, it's, it's like making sure that you're caught up on all the episodes of a show before you watch 
the season finale of something. Right? We, we, we want to binge watch every episode, make sure we don't miss any big reveals or nuances that otherwise might fly over our heads unless we're really caught up with the story. We do this, right? And a way to make sure that we experience the significant and the weight of Good Friday and of Easter and really the glory of the gospel as a whole is to lean in this week and, and read through these accounts of what's happening during this Holy Week. To really binge on the scriptures, in a sense, leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection that's going to be happening next weekend. And so my prayer is that you would really be captivated by this narrative as you read it on your own this week, as you experience the Seder dinner and the Good Friday service and then Easter next week. That that God would be revealing the realness of these events to you as you read that. And that we would feel the weight and the significance um, of this part of the narrative. And that we'd really hopefully bring us to a place of greater joy and satisfaction in Christ as we understand the narrative in context. So to understand why this one single verse talking about Jesus coming to Jerusalem is such a big deal, there are a few bits of context that really can help us uh, set this text up. So first of all, Passover was not, um, it was not a small holiday. Um, that's what the, the feast is referring to that Jesus is, is, is attending. And past, Passover wasn't just a Monday holiday that you got off and, and you got it off every year and you catch up on yard work or cleaning up around the house or you turn into a three-day three weekend and travel somewhere. Passover really was a sacred holiday each year that would remind all of Israel of, of when God miraculously freed them from their slavery in Egypt. And, and they took it very, very, very seriously. People would travel from literally all over the world, um, all, all over the, the, the surrounding um, nations to, to come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So, so keep this in mind. The Passover is a very, very big deal. Second, the Pharisees, or the powerful religious leaders at this time, uh, they're plotting to kill Jesus. They're plotting to kill Jesus at this point in the narrative. Um, and this is significant because it marks a major turning point in the narrative of John as you're reading through it. So up until chapter 11, the Pharisees simply just weren't fans of Jesus. Um, they didn't like him. He, he was kind of stirring some things up. They're making him, uh, he, he's making them look bad. Um, and, and so they started trying to scheme of different ways to outsmart him, try to catch him breaking the law, uh, try to thwart his ministry and just like trip him up. But then the resurrection of Lazarus happens. He gets resurrected from the death. And you see this in John chapter 11. And really what it does is it, it, instead of softening their hearts and, and, and as Jesus performs this miracle and it reveals something to the Pharisees and they're like, wow, this is more than just a man, it does, uh, it does the opposite. It instigates a deep anger and a bitterness and a resentment inside of the Pharisees. And really it developed into an even uh, darker hatred of Jesus for the Pharisees. And so in chapter 11, verse 53, John says, so from that day on, the the Pharisees made plans to put him to death, to put him to death. That's the shift in their perspective of who Jesus is. We're not talking about some playground bullying, right, where where the Pharisees are saying, man, I wish Jesus were dead. No, they're literally scheming and plotting ways to murder Jesus in the very literal sense, to have him killed. And so chapter 11 ends in what honestly feels like a loss for Jesus. In verse 55, if, if you're reading the, the end of chapter 11, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, 
And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before, uh, before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? And now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. And Jesus is a wanted man at this point. And if he's arrested, he will be murdered. And people are wondering if he'll show up because of all of this heat and all this pressure that's on him. I mean, honestly, can you blame Jesus if he didn't come to Jerusalem? Entering Jerusalem is literally a death sentence for Jesus. And as people look around and they don't see him, they don't see him in the temple, they don't see him outside in the crowds anywhere, they start asking, they start wondering. And people look around and when they don't see him, it would appear that, that, that the Pharisees have effectively scared him away. That Jesus has been bested, he's been diffused by the Pharisees, or has he? So let's read verse 12 again in context to this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, do you feel that? Like, there should be a little tingling in your spine as we read that in context. This is an incredibly epic moment in the narrative where Jesus demonstrates that there is nothing in all of creation that can scare him away or prevent him from finishing what he started. There is no person, no threat, no fear that would delay or derail him from accomplishing what he came to accomplish on earth, period. See, I I love this text because it gives us a glimpse into this very heroic nature of Christ. And and what's most heroic about it is that there really is no way, and this is a huge spoiler alert, right? There's no way that Jesus gets out of this unscathed. This isn't a Hollywood blockbuster where against all the odds, right, Jesus beats all the bad guys and he slips out and like the temple explodes behind him and he slow walks into the camera. No, that's not what happens. Jesus is very well aware of what he's doing. He knows that if he goes to Jerusalem, he will not leave there alive. Yet he enters the city anyway. See, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life of his own accord in order to save his flock. He he rides into Jerusalem with not a shred of shame or any secrecy whatsoever. His face is set like flint. This is all language that we see in Scripture. He knows what he has to do. He knows that he is marching right into his excruciating, torturous execution. But he does it anyway. This is the heroic brave king that I want to follow. And so in moments like this, I get fired up, right? Jesus is unflinching in the face of danger. He's motivated by, by love and compassion, willing to lay down his life for us. Now, that's, that's, that's what we see in this one verse of him just showing up in Jerusalem. So let's continue in this text. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. If you haven't noticed, there are palm branches all over the place in the center aisle. 
So grab one. Maybe people on the edges, grab a palm branch and just hand them down. Some of my earliest memories of church are uh, playing with palm branches in church and not listening to the preacher. So maybe you can have the same experience this morning. Last week, if you were with us, I mentioned that having the humility to ask the basic questions as you're reading through Scripture is key to understanding Scripture and really appreciating the word, the words as the words of God. So here are three questions I think would really help us understand why these short verses um, are, are one of the most significant reveals in all of the Bible. So the three questions are, why palm branches? Two, why the word Hosanna? And three, why a donkey? Okay, why palm branches? Why Hosanna? Why a donkey? So palm branches, as you're holding on to them, palm branches during this time period uh, were very symbolic of victory and of triumph. And this is a little bit lost in us today, uh, but if you look at old artifacts, if, if you look at the artwork, if you look at really the, even the architecture, you'd see that palm branches um, are used in a lot of different places. They, were, they would be engraved into coins, they would be on statues, you'd see them on the edges of buildings. And, and even, even though they were very common back then, what's being done with them is not. Uh, the image here is of a, of a huge crowd of people. They're grabbing these giant palm branches. So even now, not individual palms. Like they're grabbing the whole like, branch. And if we were in a, in a climate zone where these would actually grow to their fullest, right, they'd be like huge. Right? They'd be like giant palm branches. So they're, they're grabbing these huge palm branches. Um, and they're waving them in the air. And, and, and this is really a parade that's, uh, that's happening. But it's not just any parade. See, the only other time that you would see behavior like this would be for when a king returns home victorious after a long war campaign. Okay? So think about that for a moment. The only time that you'd see people grabbing palm branches, waving them as someone proceeded down the center of a major capital city is when the, the king returns triumphant from war. So if you, you think that Jesus, you would think, if, if he's a wanted man, if he's going to be murdered, uh, if, if he's found, and he's going to be arrested immediately, that he might want to be a little bit more subtle about the way he enters into the city. But he's not. He allows this incredibly powerful gesture to be made, uh, which is not subtle in the slightest. And what people are doing with the palm branches is treating Jesus as not just a spiritual leader, not just a guru, not just a teacher, but a, 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 a political leader, which at this point is a very, very big deal. It's a big deal because doing something like this would have been considered treasonous under Roman rule, because it, and it would have been punishable by death, because there is a king, and it's not Jesus. But it's not just what they're doing with the palm branches that's significant. It's, it's also what they're saying with their mouths, what they're screaming and chanting out. See, the palm branches and the parade are one thing which, by themselves, um, and while it's not ordinary, it really doesn't pack that much spiritual punch. But what are they saying? What's that word they're saying? It's Hosanna. Hosanna. So why Hosanna? If you've grown up in, with any church experience, you've probably heard this word before. You've probably seen it. You, you maybe even sung it. And we're going to sing a song at the end of the service that's really popular. It uses the word Hosanna. I think the song is called Hosanna. And so for me, growing up in the church, I, I never really understood 
what it meant for the majority of my Christian life. It was just one of those Christianese words that you say because everyone around you is saying. And it's a very interesting word, to say the least. So for a crowd of people to be chanting the word Hosanna as Jesus enters the city is incredibly significant um, because of the, the, the weight behind this word. But you need to understand what the word means so you can feel that weight. And so a quick lesson. So the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament uh, was first written in Greek, right? So you've got those two languages that separate uh, the, the Bible. It's pretty basic. And so we know, looking at the New Testament today, that the majority of the words um, are translated into English, obviously, as you read it. Uh, but not all of them. Not all the words are translated into English. As we're reading, we recognize most of the words, uh, but there are some that are adapted from the, the, the original language with really no English equivalent, right? Hosanna is one of these words. So they are English letters put together to give us the sound of the original Greek word. So the Greek word for Hosanna is? Hosanna. Hosanna. Thank you, Lucy. We need a Lucy. I'm just saying. We wish you could stay forever. But. Um, so the Greek word for Hosanna is Hosanna. But here's the interesting part. If you keep digging, right? If you keep digging, when you look up the Greek word for Hosanna, you'd see that it's actually Greek letters put together, together to sound like a Hebrew word. So the original, uh, the, the origin isn't even Greek. It's actually from the Hebrew, and the word is Hoshiana. Hoshiana. Are you still with me there? So we're tracing this back. The phrase Hoshiana is, is used only one place in the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 118.25 where it means save, please, or save us, we pray. Save, please, save us, we pray. But surprisingly, that's actually not how it's being used here. People are not asking for help when they're shouting out Hosanna as Jesus rides uh, into town. And to understand how it's being used here, I'm going to read the short excerpt from um, a study that I found really helpful. So this is about the word Hoshiana. Something happened to the phrase Hoshiana. The meaning changed over the years. So in Psalm 118, where it's used, it, it was immediately followed by the exclamation, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the cry for help, Hoshiana, was answered almost before it even came out of the psalmist's mouth. And over the centuries, the phrase Hoshiana stopped being a cry for help in the ordinary language of the Jews. Instead, it became a shout of hope and exultation. It used to mean save, please, but gradually it came to mean salvation. Salvation has come. It used to be what you would say when you fell off the diving board and didn't know how to swim, but it, but it came to be what you would say when the lifeguard came to save you. It is the bubbling over of a heart that sees hope and joy and salvation on the way, and it can't keep it in. So Hosanna, it means hooray for salvation. It's coming. It's here. Salvation, salvation. But for the people shouting this phrase, uh, for them, it, it is incredibly significant that they're shouting it out. For them to be shouting it out while holding palm branches, performing this triumphal procession for Jesus into a major city of Roman rule, granting him the effective title of king, is not just highly unorthodox, it's incredibly radical and risky. Incredibly radical and risky. 
Are you, start, are you starting to see why this short passage is so significant for Jesus' ministry? Over and over again, as, as people begin making a big deal of Jesus in the narrative of John, as you're reading through it, we see him slipping away and slipping out of the spotlight because he keeps saying, it's not yet my time. It's not yet my time. But here he is, right? All eyes are on him at, at the biggest holiday of the year in the capital city for the Jewish people. And Jesus is finally not slipping away. He's not hiding and waiting for his time to come. This is marking his time. And the action and words of the people are the most appropriate declaration for what the purpose of his time is, namely to be a triumphant king over sin and death and to call his people to be a part of his kingdom. He's there to save them. It's highly appropriate that they're shouting Hosanna. Okay, so that's why the word Hosanna, but why a donkey? Why a donkey? Of, of all the animals, or even generic modes of transportation, why a donkey? Why Shrek's little friend, right? <laughs> Every, everything up until this point is building into this grand, epic moment. It does not seem fit for a donkey. And look, I don't want to hate on donkeys, right? Um, if you've never seen a donkey, first of all, watch Shrek. Uh, second of all, it's like if you take like a, a giant horse, it's like a horse, but like you squash it all together into this little thing, and it's just generally less majestic than a horse, but it looks like a horse. That's, that's what a donkey is, okay? But why a donkey? The main reason, really, is because it fulfills this prophecy that we see in Genesis 49, verses 10 through 11, that there would be a ruler from Judah who, riding on a donkey, would command the obedience of the nations. And Jesus chooses a donkey to fulfill the prophecy um, and to let Israel know that, yeah, I'm that ruler that God had promised all those years ago, right? I'm the king you've actually been waiting for. This is another indicator that it's Jesus' time. He chose the donkey to ride in with the donkey very intentionally, but it's also another indicator um, that everything that's transpiring is, is being willingly done by Jesus, right? They didn't strap him to a donkey and knock it into the city, right? He, he tells them, go, go fetch me a donkey, and he rides in on this donkey. See, Jesus knows exactly what it would mean to choose a donkey and to ride into Jerusalem. This is not a coincidence. And so the donkey is to fulfill a prophecy. But if you're anything like me, then that's not really satisfying, right? Because the prophecy could have been written with any animal in mind. Any animal in mind, right? Why not like a white stallion or like, like a war elephant? Why not just go crazy? Create like a creature with like the body of a bear, two lion heads that is on fire with wings, right? Like why not something like that? If you're going to go in to the city, why not something more majestic than a donkey, I think what we see here is, is a common theme throughout Scripture of God displaying His glory in spite of something that's not glorious by the world's standards. See, this image of Jesus riding in on a donkey is lost for us today, right? It, it, it doesn't really make sense in context. Um, but imagine an epic, triumphal entry today into our nation's 
capital, right? You've got like this giant uh, group of people, huge crowd, millions of people. You've got the street clear. You've got confetti, all these balloons. You've got this long motorcade in front of this guy, right? And his name is Jesus, and it, he's, it's clear that he's a really big deal. Everyone's cheering his name, pronouncing him King of America, right? And instead of riding in on a limo, something exotic like, like a Aston Martin or like a Bugatti or even like flying in on a helicopter or something like that to help match the moment of pomp, uh, Jesus chooses to ride in in like a 1998 Toyota Camry that's beige, beige. No hubcaps either. Hubcaps are off. See, like the most common, humble, unassuming vehicle I could imagine. That was like in my brain. And if you ride that, like more power to you. That's awesome, okay? I'm not saying, I'm not knocking donkeys and I'm not knocking Camrys. It's kind of what the donkey represents for, for this culture. Donkeys got the job done. They weren't luxurious, they weren't majestic, they weren't elegant, but they got the job done. They were very common. They're not exactly fit for a king. They're unassuming, they're humble. See, the humility of riding a donkey um, demonstrates for us that Jesus' mission is not for popularity or for vanity, nor is his identity something that is granted to him by external factors. See, our celebrities today, even some of us to some extent, uh, we have to wear nice clothes, we have to drive expensive cars, we have to own big houses because those provide the means of significance for us as humans. We derive and, and really bestow identity um, and value from these external factors that help testify to the fact that someone is a big deal, whether it's an expensive pair of shoes or uh, whatever that is that helps create and give identity to people. See, we have these symbols of status so people know your worth. And we have these, these symbols, and, and, and it's not only sad, but it's also this form of like a manufactured idolatry where we create images of ourselves for other people to worship us. And see, Jesus doesn't do this. He, he doesn't need to do this. He doesn't need a majestic stallion to add to his majesty as the king of creation. He doesn't need expensive robes to make him a glorious ruler. He doesn't even need for people to be shouting, Hosanna. I love it because in Luke's account of these events, it includes Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees say, hey, tell his people to not say that. That's heretical. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Jesus doesn't need human mouths to tell him who he is. So even traditionally, right, your name would help give you identity and significance. But when Moses asks God for his name, God says, uh, my name is I am. Right? Not the great and powerful and all-knowing, ever-present. No, that's not where God goes. God says, they want to know my name, tell them I am. And this is the name that Jesus takes in John chapter 11, a chapter previous to this. So why a donkey? Because Jesus doesn't need anything to establish his authority, his majesty, or glory other than just being Jesus. Because this moment is more about letting the world know that he is the promised Messiah and that he has come to be the savior of the world more than it's about Jesus getting a pat on the back and kind of being built up and puffed up. 
And there will be a time for Jesus to be truly glorified, right? Truly understood, worshipped for who he is. But really, this isn't it. This isn't the moment for that. See, this is not only the heroic, brave king that I want to follow, but, but, but it's a humble God that I want to worship, whose mission is not for fame or for pomp in this moment, but focused in on rescuing the souls of men. That's Jesus' focus. So a donkey also speaks to what Jesus' time is amounting to. Israel is expecting a military leader to rise up and to free them from Roman rule. And their mindset as they shout Hosanna, as they scream, salvation is here, is focused on a very short-sighted temporary affliction that Jesus could free them from if he wanted to. And an armored stallion or a war elephant would affirm these desires in them. But Jesus' mission is much, much deeper than this, much more difficult, much more costly than just a military victory. The war that he's waging as king is not against flesh and blood. So most sermons, as we get to this point, have a lot of practical applications, and, and, and we can typically find ourselves in the text somewhere. And, and at a glance, it might be nice to say, well, let's just be like the crowd who, who says, uh, Hosanna, and calls him king, if it weren't for the fact that a few days from now, this same crowd is going to be shouting, crucify him, kill him, right? So we don't necessarily want to be like the crowd. But it does ask us this question about our allegiance to Christ. So as we examine this crowd, and we're going to be following them throughout this week, starting now in a very awesome place where they're praising and upholding Jesus' name for what it is to the point where they are shouting, crucify him. We want to see him dead. The question for us is, what does our allegiance to Christ look like? Is it that fickle? Is it a Sunday morning? Yes, I'm going to sing Hosanna and say you're a savior, but is that something that remains consistent throughout our lives regardless of the season or circumstance? I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that that's something that's easy to do, but I think that it's a question that we need to ask ourselves. What does our allegiance to Christ look like? Sometimes it's perfectly acceptable um, as an application to read the scripture and just be in awe, just be in awe, to see that it's all about Jesus and then to worship Jesus for who he is. And I think in this instance, for us, it's important to be worshiping Jesus for who he is consistently, in season and out of season, whether it's difficult or hard to do. On a Palm Sunday, on an Easter morning, right, where it seems fitting to worship God, but also in the dark places of our lives where things are challenging, where things are hard to do. And so I think if there was another thing to take away from this piece of the narrative, it's that in the story of Jesus coming to die for our sins, this is the time. It's time. It's, it's finally Jesus' time. And this Sunday, uh, it marks the beginning of, of the most anticipated series of events since the creation of the world, Right? There is this wait that's waiting for this to happen. The, the stones are trying to cry out. All of creation is yearning for this moment. And things are going to get dark very fast. We encourage you to, to come and be a part of everything that's happening this week, especially the Seder on Wednesday and then the crosswalk on Friday and our, our Good Friday service Friday evening. But things get dark 
fast. As treachery takes place, heinous acts of brutality get played out. As we see the wickedness, the depravity, and the brokenness both in the world, but then also in ourselves as we look in the mirror, we need to remember this moment in the Scriptures. Remember that that Christ is committed despite anything that he faces, that there's not going to be anything that, that derails him, that his authority does not come from man, but from God the Father, that he doesn't fall into the hands of his enemies, but he goes willingly into this path that has been set before him. This is the king that we serve. And so in a minute, we're going to have a chance to sing Hosanna. So ask yourself, what does Hosanna mean to you? Is it just a name for Jesus, or is it that exultation? Is it that cry that a Savior has come, that salvation is here? And I obviously challenge you to come to a place where you can say and sing Hosanna like that. On the night that he was betrayed, and we're going to be doing this together as a church on Wednesday, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it, drink of it in remembrance of me. If you've never done uh, communion, you're going to come down the center, and we're going to have a couple of people down here serving you communion, and you're going to swing around and grab uh, your communion cup and then loop back to your seat. And you don't have to wait for a cue um, or, or anything like that. You, you can take it at your own time. We take communion every single week so that we always land back on the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. We never get to a point where we don't need this anymore. We need this every single day of our lives, the grace of God, the salvation that he purchased for us on the cross. So as you come down here and as you take communion, think about what Hosanna means to you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your salvation. We pray now that as we take communion and remember the great cost that you willingly walked into and paid for us, God, as we remember that, that it would lead us to worship of you, that our reaction and our response to you would be appropriate for what you've done for us, God. We thank you for this grace. We thank you for this free gift, God, that you've given us. Lord, let our words and, and, and yeah, our words of worship as we sing out um, be pleasing to your ears, God. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.